Romans chapter 6 verse 1, Paul says this, What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism, baptism into death in order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. I love the and in verse 11. I love that and. Dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. It's not or. It's and. The whole Christian life hangs on that and. Paul writing to Christians is saying that if you want to consider yourself alive to God in Christ Jesus, you better also consider yourself dead to sin and vice versa. You can't have one without the other. In Christ, you get both the death and the life. The and in Paul's mind is a good thing. One of many observations to draw out from here that Paul thinks dying is a good thing. He loves that he is dead. Why? Because he hated what he has now died to. We'll sing this, one of my favorite hymns, after It Is Well With My Soul, third stanza says, My sin, oh, the bliss of this glorious thought. And my sin, not in part, not just a little, but all of it, is nailed to the cross and I bear it no more. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord, O oh my soul. Paul loves that he is dead. And I think it's telling that many Christians want to separate the death of their sin and their life in God. Death to sin, for many, is a bad thing. Life in God, of course, that's good. Here's one writer, a guy named Zane Hodges. He writes this. People are not saved by believing that Jesus died on the cross. Obviously, I disagree with this. They are saved by believing in Jesus for eternal life. The simple truth is that Jesus can be believed for eternal salvation apart from any detailed knowledge of what he did to provide it. And to that statement, Paul says, no. And, 
and. Dead to sin and alive to God. The and is the difference between life and death, between heaven and hell, between joy and sorrow. Because in order to live in Christ, this text tells us you must first die in Him. In order to go to heaven, you must not continue in sin. And I draw this conclusion then, if you live in sin, you do not live in Christ. Now that kind of sentence makes a lot of people real uncomfortable. Make me uncomfortable. To some, it sounds like maybe we're talking legalism, maybe perfectionism. But that's not what Paul's saying. What he's very clearly saying in verse 2 is that if you say that you've died to sin, if that's your claim, if that's what you profess, then you cannot still live in it. I think this kind of talk makes us uncomfortable because, frankly, often the gospel that we hear today is a gospel that's just not about sin, which is no gospel. There has to be bad news if there's going to be good news. Friends, we are saved from something and to something, but from something. The gospel of Jesus Christ is about sin. There's good news because there's bad news. So I submit to you that eternity itself hangs on that end. Let me give you a little context as we start working our way into the passage here. The book of Romans, obviously Paul's theological treatise on the gospel. This is about a third of the way through. Here we find Paul responding to a discourse on justification by faith alone, imputation, assurance, federal headship. I mean, he's hitting all the big ones. And the nature of sin and salvation. And he responds with some questions. He's going to go through the rest of chapter 6. And it should strike you, I think, that the very first question that Paul asks rhetorically, when he's thinking about the gospel and the high heights of salvation and justification, the first question that he asks is about sin. He says, what shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? He answers in verse 2. If you are dead to sin, you're not alive to it. It's that simple. And it's that hard. And then he explains that in verses 3 through 4 in terms of baptism, which I won't get into, but obviously here we're not talking about water baptism. We are talking about a spiritual baptism into Christ. And then in 5 through 11, he explains it again and finishes with the first imperative in the book of Romans. Look at verse 11. That word there, consider, is the very first imperative in the entire book of Romans. So you also consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. The reason that you, can, you should consider yourself dead to sin and alive to God in Christ goes back to the question that he asked at the very beginning. The reason you should consider yourself that way is so that you do not continue in sin. So our outline for this morning is this, or this morning, it's evening, that's the time. Three reasons Christians don't continue in sin. Three reasons Christians don't continue in sin. That's the, Paul, that's the argument that Paul is making. That's going to be our outline. And really, we're just going to follow verse 11 here. Consider yourself, one, dead to sin, two, alive to God, three, in Christ Jesus. So let's look at the first one. Three reasons Christians don't continue in sin. Number one, dead to sin. You are dead to sin. 
Look at verse 5. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. This starts off uh, the passage that is sort of bracketed. Five through seven is its own uh, dialogue on death. Eight through ten is its own dialogue on life. And then 11 sort of sums it all up and gives us the imperative to follow from. So we're going to look at 5 through 7 for this first point. In verse 5, Paul makes the ground of the certainty of eternal life a united death with Christ. We see that, right? If you have been united with him, conditional, in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. You've got to ask the question when you read this text. He says, like his, what does he mean by that? What kind of death did Jesus die? Well, he died on a cross. It was bloody. He was um, martyred. But is our death like that? Is our death like, well, at least for me, that hasn't happened to me yet. So he can't be meaning in that way. So there must be another way that he's talking about. If he says, we've died with him in this past tense, with a death like his, what, what kind of like his is that? Well, let's read verses 6 through 7 and see if we can figure it out. 6 through 7 says this, We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. So let's see if we can reverse engineer this. Paul makes a declarative statement, and then he says, in order that this thing happened, so that this thing would happen, so that the end goal would be freedom from sin. So let's start there, freedom from sin. What does Paul presuppose when he says, you've been freed from sin? Think for a second. What does he presuppose? He's saying you were not free from sin previously. You were, in fact, he uses the word here, enslaved. Enslaved. In that statement, Paul does a little anthropology. He says that you are enslaved to sin, and that's really just his argument from Romans 1, 18 through 3.20. He makes that argument very clearly. He says, there is none who seeks God, no, not one. But then Paul says, it's not just that you need someone to pay for your sins, though obviously it is that as well. It's not just that you need someone to pay for your sins because, hey, we've all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. But something else needs to change. Something else needs to happen. Namely, if you are going to be freed from this enslavement, This old man has to die, or this old self. I think he's using body of sin here probably the same way as old self. And when that guy dies, when he is crucified, then you get freed. The old man, body of sin, being the same thing, are your slave master. That's what he's implying here. And when that slave master dies, then you're free. So here's the very important question to ask then. Who is the old man? Who is this body of sin? Is it outside of you? Is it a divided part of you? Is it Satan? Is that who we're talking about? No. He calls it the old self. You are the old man. As Nathan said 
to David. You are the man. Or if you watch that horrible game show, you are the weakest link. You are the old man. All men are born slaves to their sinful selves, to their sinful nature. So what I derive from that is that this is fundamentally a question of the will. It's a question of the will. And you might say, well, how'd you make that leap? Well, Titus 3. Titus 3.3 3 says, For we also once were foolish ourselves, disobedient, deceived, and enslaved to various lusts, pleasures, desires, things that we wanted. James 1, you can turn there real quickly. James chapter 1 puts it this way. James chapter 1, verses, verse 14, but each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it's fully grown, brings forth death. You can turn back. The point there is that your enslavement is to you and what you want. This is what Luther called the bondage of the will. And at a basic fundamental philosophical level you cannot be free from what you want because it is what you want i don't want to belabor this point too much but it it would be like telling a kid stop wanting candy stop it you'd be like well i don't want it i don't want to not want candy or it'd be like i'm a big star wars nerd be like dance stop wanting to watch star wars and be like i don't want to i don't want to keep watching star wars be like talking to middle school. It'd be like, stop wanting to play dodgeball. They're like, oh, I want to play dodgeball. You don't stop wanting what you want because you want it. That's what you want. That's how that works. You say to someone, stop wanting what you want. They say, over my dead body. And Paul says, exactly. That's exactly right. This is why Christ had to die, not just for payment, but for change. Sin, interesting note, is never plural in Romans 6. There's a distinction in Paul's mind between sin and sins. Sin is the desire for sins, and sins are the actions themselves. Probably the clearest verse to demonstrate this is John 3.19. It says, this is the judgment that the light has come into the world, and the darkness loved, or I'm quoting it wrong. The darkness loved itself. Something like that. (laughs) And the light... Oh, sorry. The darkness hated the light and loved the darkness. The point here is that darkness loves darkness. It hates light. It can't stop wanting what it wants. Because, the verse ends, because its deeds are evil. The reason that you have sins is because you have sin. What's in view in this verse is not sins, plural. It's not with the S. That's not what we're talking about. This is not about the corpus of all the wrong things that you've done in your life and the payment that we need to make for that, which often when we talk about Jesus paying for that is called redemption, right? Jesus paid it all, all to him I owe. That's not what's in view in this verse here, though that's obviously necessary for salvation. Instead, in view here is the necessary death of our want to sin. We often talk about the person who is in debt, 
who becomes a slave to their debtor, and then Jesus pays that. But actually in view here is someone, namely all of us, who are born into sin and slavery and love it. We love it. You cannot be bought out of that. You would want to go back. Nature's desires have to die. And that's the old man. You guys are familiar with The Walking Dead. This is probably more than any other generation zombie-saturated. I think that's how Paul thinks about people who are outside of Christ. And imagine in some sort of post-apocalyptic zombie situation where there's, and there's always a cure, right? There's always a cure somewhere. The government's hiding it. I don't know. And there's a cure and you have it and you come across a zombie and you say to that zombie, zombie, I have your cure. I can free you from your zombie status. You can be alive. What's the zombie going to say? You know what he's going to say? Brains. Brain. I, what, or just moan or something. He's not going to want anything to have to do with that cure. Why? Because he doesn't want it. He wants what he wants and he can't stop wanting what he wants. That man has to die if we are going to be in Christ because Christ also hates sin. And he wants us to be like him. The sinner, understand, like a zombie, just doesn't even have a category for loving spiritual truth. You cannot perceive heavenly realities. There are no taste buds for glory because it just doesn't fit into their grid of experience. I was talking to someone recently who said, I just cannot believe in God because Christ cannot be proven true to my experience. I said, you're going to be waiting a while if that's your barometer. It will never happen because as long as you are in the flesh, you will be enslaved to hate Christ. You can't stop wanting what you want. But listen, if you are in Christ today, it's because you were that guy, you were that zombie, you were that slave, and through a supernatural act of God, you heard the voice of your good shepherd calling to you from his cross saying, join me, come and die. And you did. And so now you, along with Christ, are dead to sin. You are free to love your creator. Praise God. The practical outflow of this is repentance. Repentance. This is the one thing that a non-Christian absolutely cannot do, is repent genuinely. Because that is saying, I don't want that thing anymore. I've turned a corner. Jesus died so that you could repent. Jesus didn't just die to get us off the hook. Jesus died to kill you. And me. You know one of the reasons that the cross, I think, is so horrifying? Because when you see it, if you love Christ, you cannot help but repent. I know no better deterrent to my own flesh than meditating on the bloody cross of Christ. So if you're here and you are not free from your sin, this isn't the end of the sermon, but hey, what are you going to do? You need, you need to be freed from your sin. 
If you are not freed from that, if you still want what you want and it's not what Christ wants, you need to be freed from that. You are a slave to sin. So I beg you, repent. And if you are a Christian, understand that the unbeliever's chief bondage is his inability to repent. So enjoy and love repentance. I know that sounds oxymoronic, like you just can't do that. Repentance is such a wonderful gift. Do it. Use means of grace to repent. Get accountability partners. Be in part of corporate worship. Read the Bible. Get married. That'll teach you to repent real quick. I've been doing that a lot. 10 months strong. Woo. Dead to sin and alive to God. So the first reason that Christians don't continue in sin is because they're dead to it. And second reason is they're alive to God. Paul's going to assert here that if our death is similar to Christ's death, then our life is similar to Christ's resurrection. And again, his argument is fundamentally about our will. Let's look down at verse 8. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. If the past tense death is true, Paul says, then the future tense life is true. Both are now true. There's a connection here between death and life. Dead and alive. Notice the future tense view of this hope. Paul's gladness about death is pointed heavenward, even to the resurrection and the eternal state. Jesus says, Luke 9, 23, if you want to follow me, if you want the blessings of life, if you want eternal glory forever, if you want that, you better take up a cross, this implement of death, and follow me. We just sang at the beginning of the service, oh, the wonderful cross. Why? Because it bids me come and die and find that I may truly live. There's a connection between death and life. The death of the new desires are crucial because without them, friends, Christ is boring. I can testify to this. Remember what it was like not to be a Christian and to find Christ boring. And as long as Christ is boring and life in him is boring, then heaven will be extraordinarily boring. Heaven will be boring for you if you have not died to sin. I guarantee it. Out of place because the joy of heaven is a sinless, righteous Christ who died for sin. That makes sense. Spurgeon, in the, only, in the way that he says things, said this, No more can a fish live in a tree than the wicked in paradise. Dead and alive. Look at verse 9. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. This is just a basic definition of what it means to be truly alive. What it means to be alive is that there is not even the potential for a future death. See the kind of life, Paul says, that Jesus has now. It is not heading to death. Jesus, right now, does not age. He will never die again. And notice he puts this in terms of authority. He calls it dominion. Death no longer has dominion over him. Death's authority is destroyed. The empty tomb declares it that Jesus has conquered death. 
and he wants you to join him in it. Friend, if you still face eternal death, you are not alive. You're just dying. I recently learned that my childhood dog uh, is probably on his way out, starting to do old dog things that they do before they, they pass away. But I'm not all that sad about it. I mean, I'm sad because I, I love the dog, but when he dies, I mean, that's it. You know? Like, that's it for him. He's, there's no more existence. He's just, he's just gone. Sorry, all dogs go to heaven. That's... He's gone. There's no more pain. There's no more joy. There's no, no nothing. But when a non-Christian friend of mine recently passed away, I knew that that meant he wouldn't stop dying forever. Only in Christ is there a deathless kind of life. Christ is totally alive and the resurrection seals it. He submitted to death before just once, but now death is powerless before him such that Jesus cannot not live forever. But why? Look at verse 10. For, important word, because, for the death he died, he died to sin once for all, but the life he lives, he lives to God. Notice again that Paul is directly connecting Jesus' death with sin. Not with an S on the end. Just sin. And he's connecting that to life. Well, whose sin? He made him who knew no sin to be sin on whose behalf? Our behalf. Jesus didn't die for his sin. He died for yours. He died for mine. Jesus died to your hatred of him your hatred of God, your hatred of light, your hatred of God's laws. And he did it only once. I love this point. He did it once. That means that every time that the Catholic Church down the road is practicing the Mass and they say this is a sacrifice, however unbloody it may be, of Christ again, Christ is not there. He will not die again because he did it once and that was more than enough. It is finished, he said. It's critical to understand what Christ died to in Paul's mind in order to understand what he lives to, which is namely the opposite of it. Look down at verse 19. He continues this argument later. In verse 19, he puts it really clearly. He says, For just as you once presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness, leading to more lawlessness, so just as, it's similar so now present your members as slaves to righteousness, leading to sanctification. So when verse 10 says he died to sin and he lives to God, I assume that that means that for Christ to live to God is the exact opposite of our living to sin. If living to sin is hating God, then living to God is loving God. If living to sin is loving the world, then living to God is despising the world. If living to sin is unrepentant disobedience, then living to God is repentant obedience. And that's really the main point of this. If death to sin is repentance, then life to God is obedience to God. 
John 4.34, my food is to do the will of him who sent me. If being dead to sin is repentance, being alive to God is obedience. And again, just don't try to separate these two things. Paul doesn't. You cannot have one without the other. You know why most people say they think they're going to heaven? I'm a good person. I'm a basically good person, right? Follow a lot of rules. I'm generally pretty obedient. Haven't gone to prison much. But what about their sin? Have they repented? Your obedience is hollow unless your repentance is real. You cannot live to Christ unless you have first died with him to sin. One commentator puts it this way. For the Christian to choose to sin is the spiritual equivalent of digging up a corpse for fellowship. Likewise, to choose to disobey is the spiritual equivalent of starving yourself. You remember Jesus in the desert. Matthew 4.4, 4, he says, man does not live by bread alone. My food is to do the will of him who sent me. If you have repented and died to sin, you must live in obedience to God. And you know what? It's like number two on God's list for things to do in your life that would be obedient? Not sin. Not sin. Right? That would be an obedient thing to do to God. Repent of sin and then not do it. Live a life in such a way that it is so obedient to God you don't even have time to sin. Also, note that you're doing yourself a favor. You are feeding yourself. You should want to obey because it is the most satisfying food that there is. Christians don't continue in sin because their life is fundamentally one of love for and obedience to God's will in God's word. Well, three reasons Christians don't continue in sin. One, they're dead to sin. Two, they're alive to God. And three, they are in Christ Jesus. Look at verse 11. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. In Christ Jesus is the linchpin to the whole thing. Notice that Paul has spent most of his time here actually not talking about you but talking about Christ, his death, and his life. Verse 9 to 10, that's all just about Christ. And the reason that he says that is, if you're a Christian, what's true of him becomes true of you in that sense. Your hatred for sin that compels repentance is a love for Christ. Your desire to obey is compelled by a love to Christ. Jesus says it this way, John 14, 15, if you love me, you will obey my commandments. So, Paul says, first imperative in the whole book, you also must consider yourselves. Consider yourselves. Everything has been building to this simple command, which is basically this. Just be what you are. This is basically what Paul is saying. Be what you already are. This verb to be is in the present tense here. It's interesting because all of this dying to sin happened in the past tense. All of this living to God is happening in the future tense. But here we have this present tense. Right now, do it tonight. Consider yourself dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. This phrase here, in Christ, is the first time we see it here in Romans in reference to the believer. I mean, Paul uses this phrase like a maniac all over the place, Different people count it differently. Probably something around 170 times in his epistles. 
And if you just look at this passage, he's using it in different ways all over. Look at verse 5. United with him in a death like his. United with him in a resurrection. You were crucified with him. You've died with Christ. You live with him. Then again, you're in Christ Jesus. It's all about being in him. There is no Christ. There is no death. There is no life. If there is Christ, there is death and there is life. The Christian fight against sin is utterly dependent on who we're in. What does it mean to be in Christ? Well, if you guys want to stay here like another four hours, we could talk about union with Christ. But I'll just give you like the shortened version. Union with Christ, big concept. Number one, union with Christ is union in his death and resurrection. We already saw that. We're all still going to die one day, but if we're in Christ now, we will also live with him. Because he died, his resurrection is the ground and the certainty of our eternal life. But number two, and this is really where I'm going, is that union with Christ is essentially volitional. It's about the will. It's about what you want. Your desires die with him on the cross, and your hopes reside with him in eternal glory. To be in Christ is to get new desires at the death of the old ways. To be in Christ is to have spiritual taste buds for heavenly treasures. Simply put, only Christians want Christ. Only Christians love Christ and what Christ loves. Notice the contrast of this verse with his question. Shall we continue in sin? No. Consider yourself in Christ. You're not in one because you're in the other and you cannot be in both. And again, the contrast here implies that at least one dimension of our union with Christ is about what we want, our will. If we're in him, his will is our will. This is sanctification, the process of becoming like Christ. Krista and Tatiana Hogan are two conjoined twins connected at the head. And they share a part of the brain that is called a thalamus. Very interesting studies being done with them. When one of them puts ketchup on her tongue, the other one tastes ketchup on her tongue. When one of them sees a picture, the other one responds to that picture. Just fascinating. They share part of a brain. One sees, the other laughs. One tastes, the other tastes. So it is with the Christian. Jesus likes obedience. Guess what you like? Obedience. Jesus likes hair metal. You like hair metal. No, he doesn't like hair metal. Jesus likes (laughs) youth pastors. You love youth pastors, especially Alex. He's great. You know what Christ doesn't want? For you to sin. For you to sin. He wants you to repent of it. He wants you to obey the Father, but he certainly doesn't want you to sin. Jesus so emphatically hates sin, in fact, that he died to get rid of it. If you're in Christ, you hate sin as much as Christ hates sin. Or you're growing into it. 
So you repent because your sin nailed him there and you obey because it's his obedience that counts as yours by the cross. But this is the crucial point to get. You repent and you obey because you love Christ. Because you are in him. You are one with him. Turn with me. We'll finish here to John chapter 15. John chapter 15, part of the upper room discourse Jesus sharing with his apostles. John chapter 15, we're just going to look at two verses. John chapter 15, verse 10. You repent and you obey because you love Christ. Jesus says this. John chapter 15, verse 10. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. You want to be happy? You want joy? Keep his commandments. Abide in Christ. Christian, consider yourself dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Know the truth of your dead wants, your living wants, and your Christ-like wants. And I think probably the plainest way that I can say what Paul is saying in this text is this. Just stop sinning. It seems so simple and it is that hard. Stop sinning. I grew up thinking that I was a Christian because my life looked like it externally. But my desires were all for myself. I was alive to sin. And I was dead to God. Friend, if that is you here tonight, if you just want what you want, you don't want Christ to break into that at all, you don't want to have to follow anyone else's drumbeat, you're just you, I beg you, repent. Come to Christ. Be in Him and have life. Probably one of my favorite hymns, which we'll sing in a little bit. I once was lost in darkest night, and I thought I knew the way. The sin that promised joy in life had led me to the grave. I had no hope that you would own a rebel to your will. And if you hadn't loved me first, I'd refuse you still. But as I ran my hell-bound race, indifferent to the cost, you looked upon my helpless state and you led me to the cross. And I beheld God's love displayed. Oh, you suffered in my place and you bore the wrath reserved for me. Now all I know is grace. Hallelujah. All I have is Christ. Consider yourself dead to sin and alive to God in Christ. Let me pray. God, we confess that we don't want you 
the way that Christ wants you. We confess that we sin still, even though we're dead to it. But we don't want to keep doing that. We know who we are because we know our Savior. And if we are in Him, Father, we ask You now for Your grace, forgive us, and teach us to obey You. God, if there are any here who have continued to rebel from Christ, I ask that You would break the back of their rebellion tonight. They would see how foolish it would be to continue living in sin. And they would see for the first time the glories of being in Christ. Oh Father, we ask, help us to consider ourselves as we are and to worship You because of it. Your Son is our greatest treasure. May His name be magnified. It's in His name we pray this. Amen. You have been listening to Emmanuel. You can find more resources like this at ibcva.com. Here is a parting word from Pastor Jesse. If you have any questions about what you heard today, or if you want to learn more about what it means to follow Christ, please visit our church website, ibcva.com. If you're not a member of a local church and you live in the Washington, D.C. area, we'd love to have you worship with us here at Emmanuel. We're located in Northern Virginia, and for more information about when and where we worship, check out our church website. I hope to personally meet you this Sunday after our service. But no matter where you live, it's our hope that everyone who uses this resource is involved in their own local church. Now may God bless you this week as you seek Jesus constantly, serve the Lord faithfully, and share the gospel boldly.